Good morning and welcome to the Reliably Well podcast, a podcast for medical professionals looking for insight into ways to be more effective for their patients and communities by making sure they are caring for themselves first and thriving in their lives. Welcome to Reliably Well. My name is Sam Peters and I'm here with Drs. John C., Abraham, and Lovely. And today we're going to talk about imposter syndrome. You know, an email that Dr. Johnson sent me, I think a few months back, there was an article that talked about how clinicians, many clinicians, deal with imposter syndrome. Today I want to talk about, is it common in healthcare? And why is it common? Is it really a problem? And how should we respond to this? So the article was um, by Dr. Stacy Harmon, and in the doctor's lounge, he found an antibiogram that clinicians, in their spare time, they were reading this. And what flooded Dr. Harmon's mind, um, why is this person reading this in their spare time? Should I be reading it? Should I be memorizing it? Uh, am I not keeping up with my skill, or am I just an imposter? And I guess for me, think about clinicians there being a huge filtering out process at the beginning of med school, right? You have to do really well on this test, and then you have to go through med school, then you have to go through residency. I would never think that a clinician feels that they're an imposter. Uh, Dr. Johnson, do you, have you ever felt like you were an imposter? Yeah, I think that um, uh, this is important uh, for us to talk about because I think it is pretty common uh, for um for physicians, for uh, practitioners in, in medicine, um, while you are between two uh, different um, um, balances here, there is the one, as you talk about, I have achieved so much, I have done so much. I, I remember coming out of residency and feeling extremely confident and comfortable uh, in what I had learned and in how I could care for patients. And then typically, for me, what came along was a humbling experience, and and so placing a central line on a patient, one of the complications can be a pneumothorax, and I had never had that complication, and I had that complication um, in in a patient uh, out of residency, and it was it it does bring back okay, why did you do that? Uh, that's not something someone who's trained or educated as well as you are ought to be doing, even though it is a known complication of, of that procedure. Um, but I think it, there, there are these questions that come about, and then you have to fight uh, that emotion that is there, that doubt that gets generated. It is probably in every area of medicine, but I think more so from my perspective in emergency medicine, because we are the front of the care pathway for many patients and we have many people who come behind and look over things so we do hear a lot more comments coming back um, our way on well you missed that or why didn't you do this sort of thing and so there is some of that self-doubt I think that gets generated from these comments that in the right way are meant to improve our, our perspective and make sure we don't have blind spots to certain uh, conditions or questions that come up. Um, but on a personal level, they can be very humiliating um, and they can be very, um, they, they can 
cause um, a clinician, uh, again, to doubt themselves, and then that, if that's not handled appropriately, uh, if that's not understood, not analyzed in the right way, it generates a lot of uh, angst, a lot of difficulty in in functioning, uh, leads to a lot of overprocessing of patients and ex- excessive testing that uh, is not good for the patient or the system. There's just a lot of negative effects that that I think spawn uh, directly from this idea that is that is far too common. Um, medical training in general uh, has been one where we beat people up a little bit uh, as we train them um, to make them uh, strive and get better and challenge them. Um, and we have a we, we, we don't necessarily turn that off well and help to, once people have joined the club, build them back up and help them to understand and help them help it to be a, a more collegial. I think the the generation that's come after me is much more focused on collegiality. Um, and so I hope that much of that negative side of medicine is going away, but it's not gone. Dr. Abraham, would you want to introduce yourself uh, since this is the first time on the podcast? And then also, have you felt like you're an imposter in medicine? Yes, my name is Sumner and I'm an imposter. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm an internal medicine physician. Um, I've been with Rice for about the last year and a half. Um, this is something I've thought a lot about, um, probably because I felt it um, and felt it kind of in my first stint in an academic um, junior faculty position where I felt like I had no business being there. Um, and there's a writer, Suzanne Coven, um, to Dr. Johnson's point, this, I mean, this is quite common. The most read article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017 was a perspective piece about imposter syndrome. So, I mean, if that's any litmus test, I think that's a pretty good litmus test. But the uh, title of the article is A Letter to a Young Female Physician. And she's actually coming out with a book later this year, um, Dr. Coven is, um, titled the same thing about this idea of clinicians being imposters. And it's not just written for female clinicians, but also for males. But 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 it's kind of this plays off of this kind of... Um, I mean, imposter syndrome is this psychological pattern discovered in the 1970s where it's this self-actualized fear. Like it's generated in yourself despite accomplishments or external validation. You don't internalize them for whatever reason. And so this is something that's manufactured in you. And the fact that we probably all feel it, it kind of proves that point. Um, But she has these kind of these great little snippets that I think are worth reading. One is that, Uh, Clinicians sometimes believe that displaying medical knowledge, the more obscure, the better, would make he or she worthy. And that 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 belief is really useful, um, but it only provides superficial comfort. She goes on to say that, um, and Dr. Johnson alluded to this as well, that competence sometimes for clinicians just means knowing how to do things. If I know how to do this procedure, then I'm competent. Um, and sometimes even you know exactly how to do it, and there is a complication that is a known complication and happens. Um, and then also this idea that, <clears throat> and I feel this a lot as an internist, where you um, are buoyed by every queer chest film or every resolution of a kidney injury or every negative blood culture um, because you think that being a good doctor is curing people, and that's just not the case. Um, Sometimes you do everything perfectly and the patient still doesn't do well. 
but you're still buoyed by these really um, superficial things. And so um, I would say that, you know, especially towards the wider stages of your training, when you feel like you're about to get out, you certainly feel like an imposter early on in your training, you feel like an imposter. But I think people that have been practicing for three or four decades might even feel like an imposter with the new kids coming out of training who are citing all this literature that they hadn't thought about in sure. four decades. Dr. Lovely, have you felt like an imposter? And also, why do you think this is the case with clinicians? I think it's a little bit like uh, like astrology. If you read what imposter syndrome is, everybody's going to feel that a little bit uh, to some extent to varying degrees. I think medicine uh, in general does a excellent job of instilling imposter syndrome in everybody in the room. <clears throat> and I'll give you an example. Uh, go into any medical school class or residency and ask a question to the group of, that's a medical knowledge question. Complete silence. There's no intellectual discussion. There's no. There's such a fear of being wrong in front of your peers and that uh, embarrassment that you internalize that to where you all feel, the entire group feels inadequate together, as opposed to uh, when you finally, at some point, open up and start talking to your colleagues and uh, honestly start talking to your patients and let them understand the limits of your knowledge. And it lets them, uh, I guess that's kind of how I worked through it eventually, was just to be completely honest about where I was. And I can, well, I have one other really good example. My chief year, uh, just to show how ingrained it is in a, medicine and my residency program was very strong and all the uh um faculty were great but um this theme was there too so uh you get give lectures as a chief resident so i did one one of my buddies had put in a chest tube and caused a hemothorax uh on it was just a just a pneumothorax the patient had so collapsed lung there was no blood it was spontaneous and he put in a little chest tube, and the chest tube had nicked one of the arteries going in and ended up causing hemothorax, and the poor guy had to have a blood transfusion. And he did well ultimately, but it ended up being a bad complication. So after that, it was one of the cases I presented, and I researched it in detail. And chest tube's a high-complication procedure. It was up to 5%, especially for people that hadn't done it well. And I just stated these facts in front of the residency, you know, the 30 of us and the faculty. And afterwards, one of the faculty was like, I don't think we should be giving ourselves excuses for when bad things happen. It's like, factually, bad things are going to happen. You have to accept this. We can't just block it out and pretend like there's no complication or anything. So you have to forgive yourself. That was the point I was trying to make. And I was actively critiqued by one of the faculty that we shouldn't, that we should hold ourselves to a higher standard than that. I'm sure you've experienced the same, right? No, and it's, and it's so funny that it, that it takes that first step of vulnerability for somebody to talk about it. And then that silent room turns into like chatter around every single group because everybody realizes like, no way, you feel that same way too? Um, I, I thought I was the only one. Um, I, I think that's so interesting here. I mean, we didn't actually, we, we, we did kind of have a little outline here, but we didn't actually get together and discuss this. But uh, every, every comment that one of us is making, the other two are shaking their head and complete agreement and yes I've been there kind of uh, idea that 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 we're saying it, it, it is although you know that it is common I think we may be saying it's universal really uh, what what is going on here with maybe just a few uh, exceptions that are have highly abnormal <laughs> psyches or something that that they wouldn't feel it and I think that that's a big part of of 
to to your next point, Sam, that you haven't asked yet. But but what do we do about it? What I guess what are the effects of it? One, and then what do we do about it? Um, and I think there are a ton of negative effects. I mean, I, I think from a global system standpoint, there's a ton of that stuff that we see. There are people who order every test under the sun because I've had one before. So everybody gets a troponin because I remember this person who had toe pain and they wound up having an MI. And so I order troponins on everybody. Or the doctors you know. that don't trust D-dimers because they heard of one D-dimer that probably was a subsegmental. So they just scan anyway. every patient. Yeah. And in fact, I've had doctors get really mad at APCs because they ordered a test that I wouldn't ordered and then called a subsegmental and then they came to complain to me about it. And I'm like, oh, well, you called an incidentaloma. Congratulations. I'm not mad at the APC for treating the patient in a data-driven way. Yeah, and and I and, and then the admissions that wind up coming because I just don't feel safe about discharging somebody. Um, I remember Art Chambers very early on in my career saying that his definition of an EM physician was somebody who has discharged a patient who went home and died or is about to. Um, and I think that while that was shocking to my young, naive ears at the time, it is very, very true, and it is very, very helpful for the inexact science that we practice. How long ago was that that he told you that? I, that was 13, 14 years ago. That was very emotionally intelligent and forward at that period of time. Uh, and I'm sure for you to remember that 14 years later, it was clearly an outlier in your experience Absolutely. that somebody was that honest about what we actually face day to day. And and I agree, it is a systemic thing. And I think as a society right now, actually, we're going through some cultural things where people are opening up and trying to understand each other better. And as part of that, your people are more open to expressing themselves and expressing their own limits. But uh, particularly in, in medicine, we need to move that direction much faster. We tend to lag behind the rest of society. Yeah, and it's a bit like this is like this is the driver in the depersonalization of the patient, though. Because you don't have this, because you're so inside your own head, you're so afraid you're going to make a mistake, you're so worried that you're going to miss something, you're so nervous about the next patient that you're going to see, and what if, what if I'm caught in between these two patients, or what if I'm admitting this other person, somebody's crashing on the floor, I need to, that you can't even like realize that the patient has a story, and they're, they're a grandfather, or they're a sister, or they're a track athlete or you know they love to fish for crappie and that's really what they i mean like i mean you just like miss the 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 human aspect of it because you're so anxious and fearful um and that and like to me that is this kind of implicit first step that gets the snowball spinning down the hill of when you look up and you're 15 years into a career and you say i don't know that i can work another shift in the in the the pro-inflammatory effect of that fear that you carry with you or you bring onto the shift, I mean, you can just palpably feel the unhealthy aspect of that on, on the physical side of, of, a, of a clinician. And so I think that's why it is so important that it is one of those, I mean, is this soft, touchy-feely sort of stuff? Yes, it is, but it is vital that clinicians do engage in something like this to be able to free themselves from that burden that, again, is probably universal. And once you get to that point that you feel comfortable in the skin that you do wear, the career is a lot better. As you say that, you can feel the tension in the room. Uh, say you're watching a medical student or a resident, that there's this uncomfortable tension that's thick in the room whenever 
the doctor's not being completely transparent with the patient. So they're asking questions and maybe the doctor doesn't completely know the answer to that question and they try to pretend to answer it anyway. And it's just so palpably thick. It's just tell them you don't know the answer. Let's Google it together. Like it's not a big deal. Everybody doesn't have to remember every fact. We don't have to be an encyclopedia. Right. And then going back to the touch of feely thing, uh, Suzanne Coven loves to say that um, everybody's touchy-feely. You just have to admit that you are. Like, yeah, like, sure, this is kind of this, like, nuanced psychological phenomena. And, you know, everybody's kind of tired. Everybody's burned out of talking about burnout. Um, but, it's, <laughs> but, it's a, but it's a real thing. We have to, um, we have to work on it. Like, yeah. it's the, that's why we keep talking about it is, like, we have to do something. But I, but I am more and more convinced every single day that this imposter syndrome is that first step that's the hardest to unwind because you almost have to put all your cards on the table. Be like, I really have no idea what's going on here. And when you're working 20, 12 hour shifts a day as a resident, you don't have time to stop and process. How do I feel about my decision making? And how do I feel about discharging somebody in a dangerous situation? You don't have time to think about that. You're just trying to memorize as much as you can and move on. You're so emotionally exhausted. You can't really have one of these kind of conversations with somebody. To, to 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 get any feedback that's useful. It's not until you're attending six years out where you can finally start talking to your friends and be like, hey, man, that was all really messed up stuff. <laughs> so, Dr. Abraham, it seems that the conversations right now is that imposter syndrome is not good. It paralyzes clinicians. I have seen arguments that say that imposter syndrome is a good thing. It lets people know of their deficiencies, and it will be a motivator for them to become more competent. So it'd be kind of silly for us to have a podcast if we were going to construct imposter syndrome to be a bad thing and then solve it. But what if it's not a bad thing? Do you think that imposter syndrome is a bad thing? I think that imposter syndrome is. It just is an entity. I don't know that it's, I don't know that it has a character to be good or bad. I think that what the clinician chooses to do in light of that could be good or bad, but I don't know that you can label it. I just think it's something that, that there, there is something that happens when you step into the arena of medical school and maybe even before that, where you can't be wrong anymore. You know, like it's like a fascinating thing. We're going to take a little bit of rabbit hole here. It's a fascinating thing. You think about all these um, colleges that have these honor codes, like Davidson, UVA, few. So you can go and you you schedule your own test, right? Like you can schedule your test whenever you sign this honor code and like you could cheat on the test, but nobody does, right? It's like a really kind of interesting thing. What happens when you go to medical school and you take a test? You've got to like, they like pat you down. You have to turn in all your stuff in the front. They have people policing all of the chairs in front of you. I mean, it's like a really weird thing where you go, you know, like a really robust academic environment. And then it's almost like you go back to kindergarten where it's like, oh, you know, I have to like make sure that you're not cheating on this test. And it's what's really interesting is that people would cheat on the test. Like these same people that went to this, you know, great college where they sign this honor code and they take their exams whenever they want to and nobody's worried about it. And then they go, they get into medical school and then people are policing everything that they're doing. To me, that's like so strange and like, there's something in that where you can't, like, you can't be wrong anymore. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, you like have to be, um, you have to follow this algorithm, and if you misstep, it's on you. 
and like I just think that that kind of reorienting ourselves to the fact that we're not like we're not trying to get a right answer. We're trying to care for somebody, and caring for people is really messy. And I, and I think that's what the 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 nomenclature of imposter syndrome carries with it is the negative connotation is that I am an imposter, is that I am not learn I'm not an eternal learner in what's going on. I am supposed to be this um knight in a white coat who's riding to the rescue and has all of the answers. And I if I fail at that at any point with a bad outcome, with not knowing the answer with a complication of a procedure, then I have proven that I am the imposter. So while I, I, I wholeheartedly agree, it is the path we take with what we feel in the end that can continue the negative or change it into a positive. I think the idea, the the concept, the emotion of the imposter syndrome is negative to begin with. Um, and so um, I, I, I do think that we, we don't we don't want we can go too far and pat everyone on the back and tell them they did a good job and and never hold anybody accountable to the system that is there. But what we have done throughout medicine for at least 50 years before I joined the profession was we had the standard of perfection was the standard. And it did not allow for the human element to occur. And what what I think discussions like this do is let people understand there is a human on the other side of the interaction and you are human too. And we are not perfect entities, either one of us. And being playing from that standard as opposed to playing from the perfection standard removes this idea that I'm an imposter. Because I'm not an imposter. I'm Joe Johnson. I trained as a physician. I trained as an emergency medicine clinician. And I'm imperfect. But I'm going to do the best job I possibly can. I'm one of 7 billion humans, and I'm doing the best I can here. And that's the best I can do. I do want to go back because I would have answered uh, just, yes, imposter syndrome is bad. And I would have quoted the example of... Uh, uh, the physician where you call and they've made a mistake, the nurse the nurse calls them and they've made a mistake. And just out of not being able to admit that mistake to themselves, they yell at the nurse, tell them to do what they told them to do and hang up the phone, even if it might cause some mild patient harm. We know doctors like that. So that was the reason I would say yes. But Sumner's answer is better in that it delves deeper into what is imposter syndrome. What is that feeling of inadequacy inside that you have to kind of work through and that feeling exists and that's what imposter syndrome is and does it in some way drive you to better yourself and learn? I think maybe, but you have to be able to, it can also block your growth too. So I'm not sure where the answer is. Yeah. I, so like in a PhD school, some people may think, well, you know, you are, uh, you're learning so much about something, you know, very narrow, you, you probably are so confident in your ability, but really what you do is you study a lot and you find out how much there is to know and you feel so inadequate and you know you're on the edge of what there is to know. So really when you learn a lot, you're going to be very insecure in your knowledge. You've just de- defined the experience of medical school. <laughs> yeah. So, 
but sh- does that paralyze you? So that's like, does that necessarily paralyze you? Or do you just realize I'm human? I'm not going to know that all there, all there is. Every time I read an article, the footnotes are going to be loaded. And I'm going to know that those are caveats that I'll never be able to trail. I think mental framing affects it. So if you go into it with, all right, this is the limit of human knowledge here now, uh, and accept that it could be a depressing thing, but you also realize we got this far by standing on the shoulders of our dads, and it's my job now to push this edge a little bit further for the generation behind us. And I think that's what we're doing right here. Weirdly, I think this is probably one of the most important parts of our generation is starting to open up and communicate with each other. You mentioned Arthur earlier. I'll bring one up too in the same vein. Uh, when it comes to kind of working through imposter syndrome, Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead, she talks a lot about just the same thing we're talking about, being emotionally open and taking that armor off and sharing with your coworkers and your whoever you're interacting with. And that openness gets you openness back and you start to connect a little better. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's the other part of it is that um, un- understand who we are and understand we're part of a team, uh, whether it is uh, the Relias team that we're a part of or the DCH or North Mississippi team or whatever we, we function inside. And we don't have to carry everything on our own shoulders by ourselves. It is much, we engage the people that know what you know and know what you don't know and know when you don't know the answer to ask the question. Um, and so I think that that I, I have certainly seen some of that turn in my my perspective of my career from the point of, oh, you don't know what you should do to the, yeah, yeah, this is what you ought to do kind of uh, interaction that you have with a subspecialist. Um, so I think the collegiality of medicine in general is turning, and that's a very, very positive thing. Uh, for folks that you don't have to know the footnotes. You just have to know the article. Somebody else knows the footnotes for you. I agree. Now when I call my urologist friend for a benign question, they're not laughing at me. They're happy to talk through whatever it is and uh, empathetic with what I'm dealing with usually. Not always, but for the most part, I feel like it's moving that way, which is good. Back to Dr. Abraham. So you said that imposter syndrome just is. So we can respond to it and it let, allow, let it to paralyze us, or we can respond to it in what way for it to be beneficial. So how would you, let's say a clinician comes to you and say, Dr. Abraham, I am, I'm a fraud. I feel like I'm a fraud. Everyone's above my league. What would you say to how, how would you instruct that person or advise that person to respond to their own feelings of inadequacy? Um, I would give him this poem by William Carlos Williams, great author. He was actually a physician. Um, and he wrote, uh, I can't pronounce the French or Spanish or whatever it is. It's the title of the poem. But the first line goes, I suppose I should. He has this amazing line in there that um, I'll read um, that you all will probably laugh at. Um, I suppose I should put my medical journals on edge instead of letting them lie flat in heaps, then begin 10 years back and gradually read them to date, cataloging important articles for ready reference. I I suppose I should also read the new books. And he goes on about all these things that he supposes that he should do. Okay, that was written in 1918. So I would tell that person that you're not alone. (laughs) The physicians have felt this way for a long time, that they suppose they should. I've got Annals of Internal Medicine in my bag that I like carried in my bag as if I'm going to read it. Um, I'm not going to read it. I'm never going to open it. It's going to go straight to my office and sit on its, I, I lay my journals flat. 
um, instead of on their side. But I would say that like it's pretty normal. Um, but I would hope to respond in them to where they feel felt. Okay. So I think that the step to this, so like I think somebody could be really cynical and they could listen to this and say, well, yeah, I mean, okay, cool. Like I'm with you about this imposter syndrome deal, but like how do I change the generation that doesn't want to talk about this stuff, right? Because I think Blake's right. I think that this is a microcosm and, a, and maybe a blueprint of how to just to talk about this in a kind of an honest and vulnerable way. But I, but I would hope that I would respond to them in a way that they feel like I'm, that I'm feeling what they're feeling. And oftentimes I think that just comes with listening. I think that's also the hardest thing to do in our world where you're busy and you've got a bunch of patients to see every hour. You've got four more admissions that you have to get through and you're just kind of thinking, gosh, I just kind of got to get through my day. It's really hard to stop and have somebody feel felt when they interact with you. And Kurt Thompson, who's also a physician, he's a psychiatrist, but he's written a lot about this, about how, how might we dare to lead or how do we act out this vulnerability, maybe in a clinical setting or in a way that's not this, you know, uh, touchy-feely podcast, you know, like, how, how do I do it tomorrow <laughs> after I've just watched a grandmother die and I've got to go take care of this kid that's broken his arm? And that, I mean, that, I mean, that's a really challenging thing to do, but I think if somebody knows that you um, that you hear them and that you, uh, it's going to spur them on to continue to talk about it. Right. And I think it's this, you know, Coven talks about all these different things that buoyed her, you know, um, curing people, doing stuff, medical knowledge, but what's actually going to help your patients and help you is just owning your humanity. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, like that's like, that's actually what's going to help your patient is you walk in and maybe you don't know what to do about the fluid you just drained out of their abdomen, you know, you know that it's not good. They're, they're about to get some bad news and it's going to eat up a bunch of your time and you're worried about all the work that has to be done. But I think that like asking them like, Hey, like I like to fish too. Like that's actually going to move the needle with caring for the patient. And I think in some ways it's also going to be healing to me, who's the imposter in that situation that I'm not just kicking the can down the road. Cause I'm talking to this guy about fishing I'm actually connecting to him in a real way that establishes both of our humanity and that we're people first and foremost. Because you're about to have to have the realest conversation that you ever have with another human. Right. So you should probably start a little softer, right? Sure. You should take them to dinner first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just, you know, like, not not only is it bad, but it's like, I don't even know what it is. Yeah, exactly. Like, this <laughs> you know, is not like, a good thing. You're about to go on this wild goose chase to try to find where this primary tumor is that you're dealing with, but man, like just cause I don't know what to do doesn't mean that I shouldn't display my humanity and also receive and honor that person's humanity too. Um, and I think that that's, I think that that's where you can start in the midst of a busy shift. So listen and own your humanity. Dr. John C. I, I, I would say to that person, congratulations for being real, for being honest. Uh, that, uh, again, I think the only way that this gets better is if you acknowledge that you are a human and that you are imperfect. And once you get to that point and you can enunciate that to another clinician, especially um, a, a mentor, maybe somebody you respect who can sit there and voice back to you, feel the same way, buddy. Not that that dismisses what's going on with you, but now you have this this helpful relationship where you can share that vulnerability and understand that you're not alone. 
And that's what takes away this, you know, this veil that you feel that you must wear so that people won't see through the fake that you are because you're not a fake. You're just human. And so I, I, you know, that, that would be in that, that way of trying to say, yes, we're part of the same brotherhood. Let's share more about this because I'm going to need your help one day too, when it gets too much for me to feel that way, um, uh, to, to, to bear anymore. So I, I think that that sort of openness is so much the key to someone not letting this be paralyzing Instead, letting this be the fuel to embrace where they are and correct or improve anything that they can versus I don't want to say anything to anybody because once they know that I'm not as smart as I portray myself, then I'm done for. That's not that that outcome that you have inside your head is not real. It's not going to happen. And once you realize it's not going to happen, I think this this syndrome loses so much power. And like, I think that's a great point because I think that that, um, I think some people would be tempted to say, well, if I get into the habit of talking about, I don't know stuff, that's an excuse to not get better, but it's actually not. It actually makes you way more motivated to, um, improve competence on a procedure or read and learn about a disease or go read the latest research on how in the world we're going to treat the coronavirus, you know? Um, quiz the new grad on yeah. the new medicines. What are y'all using? What just came out of residency? Be open about, hey, I, what did you learn? I didn't know that stuff. That's good. Right. Um, instead of, you know, uh, being anxious about antibiotic dosing with somebody that has end-stage renal disease and not asking anybody because you work, just go say, meet the pharmacist mm-hmm. and, and say, hey, my name's Sumner. I really need some help in this antibiotic dosing. And then right? you develop that culture within your team and you start to have those conversations in a regular way. But I think the way I would answer the question is uh, look at a colleague that you love and trust. And then because we we've talked about this before, how we judge ourselves much more harshly than we do others. So seeing your colleague, their imperfections, but still that you believe that how great they are as a clinician, even though we all have our flaws and then love yourself in that same way and accept accept your own flaws in that same way. And in accepting those flaws, you can start to work on your weak points and kind of maximize what you can do. And then second, I had one point that I think Joe may have a lot to weigh in on. I didn't realize until I kind of joined the Realize team and started walking around ERs with Joe, uh, how much influence we have on our own work environment. You can completely, you can come in and completely change your day. I can bring an APC in and uh, pay them out of pocket and supervise them the whole day. I can change the way the computers are set up. I can call IT. You can completely modify. If you push, Something will come out the other side. If you are actually interested in modifying your work environment, it's completely easy to do. Um, as an associate medical director uh, at a small facility, I can make as much impact then as I can now. Uh, it doesn't matter where you're at. If you're interested in changing it, you can change it. It's not, it's not a matter of title or practice or whatever. It's just a matter of going and doing whatever needs to be changed. And not only that, but I think that you're more effective in leading from a posture of humility. And that that actually is amazing. Is you could two, two individuals could want the same outcome and go have the same uh, blueprint on how he or she may go about doing that. But if you do it in a way of humility and people know, man, you know, Blake's actually going to shoot me straight and we're about to, like, I know that I kind of know a little bit about him and I know where he um, 
has kind of expressed to me that he feels like an imposter sometimes. You're actually probably going to really move the needle and you're actually probably going to get a better product of what you're trying to push out the other side because you're going to allow other people to help you as opposed to the other person that wants the same outcome that's just going to push and say, this is the right way to do it. You know, uh, kind of either get in line or get out of the way. Um, that doesn't work. Who are you going to, who are you going to trust <laughs> right. out of those scenarios? Right. right. So it seems that owning your humanity, listening, being open, being able to change your environment, kind of like what you said just now, it's about being humble in medicine. There's high expectations, very high expectations, but we can respond to imposter syndrome, feeling like an imposter, feeling like you're a fraud. We can approach that with a posture of humility, and that is how to respond. Is that what I'm getting? 100%. Very good. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, thank you, Drs. John C., Abraham, and Lovely for this discussion. If you have any ideas for a new episode, please reach out to me. And if you could, give us a five-star review. If you do that, uh, we will get ranked higher on search results, and uh, we would love that. Until next time, be well. Be well.